Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. We're going to get started for the evening. We have some special guests this evening. You may or may not know that once a year we auction off some tables for uh, to raise a little bit of money so that we can buy beer and food for our speakers and um, sound equipment and, and this kind of thing. And um, last year during our auction, this table was purchased, but it wasn't able to be used until now. So here it is. Take it in in all its glory because the auction is next month and you could have a table. <laughs> and the significance of next month is that it's our second anniversary for Golden Beer Talks. It's our third? No. Second. Okay. That's what I thought. So, on that note, you know, just something to think about over the coming month. If you are running out of things to think about, you can kind of cast your mind to the Golden Beer Talks auction. We want to say our thank yous to start, start and end with gratitude. So thank you very much to the Wendy Saddle and their staff for hosting us and feeding us. And thank you also to Golden.com for always promoting our events, especially this month, featuring that lovely picture of the beer ambassador. That was a good one. We have for sale some beer pints that have our Golden Beer Talks logo on them. You can own personally in your own home or give to someone you truly love. Uh, four of them for $20. Huh? See mm. <laughs> Barb if you would like to buy one of those. Four of those. Nice. So the schedule looks like this. Our speaker is going to come up after being introduced by Frank and speak for about 20 minutes. Then we're going to take a quick break for beer, snacks, whatever else you may want, and we're going to come back for a quick Q&A. We do need to kind of move on by 8 o'clock so that the Windy Saddle staff can shut down. So if you're listening to the talk and you're very curious about something, this would, that would be a moment to kind of tuck in your pocket your very essential question that you want to get in in the Q&A before it eclipses. So I'm going to bring up Frank, our beer ambassador here. He's going to talk about our beer selections from Cannonball Creek, and he's also going to introduce our speaker for the evening. Come on up, Frank. Hello, thank you, and uh, welcome to the September 2015 version of Golden Beer Talks. We've almost done this for two years, and um, it's been quite a lot of fun. I, uh, I normally make up a lot of notes to present on, and I seem to have managed to lose my notes this time somewhere in this pile. Um, anyway, this month the featured brewery is Cannonball Creek. Would, uh, in a normal rotation, it would have been last month, but they were busy making beer for the Great American Beer Festival, and they were like, <laughs> we can't do you this month. How about next month? And so this month we've got, normally I get two beers. This year, or this month, we've got three because they really didn't have enough of any two uh, to give us what we needed. Uh, so we've got a very nice rosemary saison made with organic rosemary. Uh, we have a porter that was in limited supply. That was the smaller version. And then we have their Mind Bender IPA, which is a very nice, I think it's a very nice IPA, nice and citrusy, uh, fairly bitter, about 80 IBUs. On, on the, they, they, um, Cannonball Creek doesn't like to quote IBUs, uh, International Bitterness Units. Uh, so you kind of have to wring it out of them. But uh, it's t about 25 for the Saison, 30 IBUs for the Porter, and then about 80 for the Mindbender IPA. And um, 
Cannonball Creek is at 393 North Washington. So far north on Washington, you didn't know it went that far. <laughs> and um, they normally have six to 12 beers on tap. They have had one gold medal and two silver medals from the Great American Beer Festival, so maybe they'll get some more this year. And they had a bronze medal from the World Beer Cup. Um, they have some beers that are going to be on tap soon that I would have liked to have sampled, to have brought here, but they haven't been completed yet. Um, so you got to make decisions. I normally try to get two contrasting beers. This month we've got three. Uh, I have spoken a few times. I said that we, I'd uh, bring some beer factoids forward for every beer talk, and I thought I'd be running out of factoids, you know, like after about six months. And um, that's never been the case. It's like, how do you choose amongst all of the stuff to talk about? Uh, I have mentioned how AC Golden has been trying to create a hops industry in Colorado and encourage people to grow hops, and they're paying three times the going market rate for hops, for Colorado hops here in uh, Colorado. And um, they recently sent out information to the Colorado Brew Crew all about how to harvest your hops, how to properly dry them, and then donate them so that they can make more Colorado native beer, which is made strictly with Colorado ingredients. And they had all sorts of details, and I thought I would run into that. But instead, I wanted to talk about nurturing the beer industry here in Colorado, because is it not the featured article in Colorado Heritage Magazine for the September-August edition? And, not, and, and the title of this article that's in the Colorado Heritage Magazine, which is from Colorado uh, History Colorado, is Brewers Want the Best, Growing a Brewing Industry in the Centennial State. And so, for instance, in the early days, 1860s, 1870s in Colorado, most of our hops were coming from upstate New York, and they were trying to encourage us... <laughs> they, were, they were trying to cur encourage us to grow more hops here. And somehow it passed over us over to the northwest, to Washington, Oregon, and Idaho, uh, that became the big area for growing hops. But of course, they can get about four times the harvest per acre in that area because they've got a longer growing season, it's not so cold, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this article, by the way, was penned by Golden Beer Talks presenter from June 2014, Jason Heller who presented to us on Denver Water, on the history of Denver Water, and he said I could come back and talk about beer, so I think we will need to encourage him to come back and talk to us. Um, so this article addresses how the brewers themselves were trying to encourage uh, the production of beer-related products, including hops, with ads, and they, they talk about ads from 1871 through 1911 that the local brewers were, were uh, taking out in the you know, Rocky Mountain News, uh, Denver Post, and have you ever heard of the Colorado Transcript? The oldest continuously running newspaper in Colorado, right here in Golden, formed or uh, originated by George West. The Golden Transcript. And so in 1875, in an editorial, uh, George West was encouraging people to grow barley and to grow hops in this area so that they could support the brewers. And I just kind of like that because it ties it all back to Golden. Uh, barley, he pointed out barley was more valuable than wheat, so if you could grow barley on your acre of land, you're going to make more money. 
seemed like a strong product for a, a ready market because the brewers were willing to give the farmers the hops and the barley at cost, and they would sign a contract with them to take all that they could produce once they had grown however many acres of stuff they had. And there were references to a 20-acre hop farm in Morrison and then some barley farms here in the Golden Area. So anyway, um, and then another interesting thing in this article about eating local, uh, Denver Ale Brewing Company in 1873 took out an ad that it was the first brewer in Colorado to ship beer out of state on the railroad, which had recently made it here to the Denver area in the early 1870s. Uh, They shipped to Laramie, and then they were the next day going to ship to Salt Lake City. So they took this out to demonstrate, you know, how viable they were. Um, And then uh, there were counter-articles in the later 1880s and 1890s discussing how important it was to support your local breweries and your local sources of food and drink. And in particular, they were targeting Zhang Brewery because they had a lot of outside ownership. So they were a local company, but they were owned by people from out of state. So they were encouraging people to drink Coors beer and other such beers in the area. Um, So the beer that I would have liked to have had from Cannonball Creek was fresh hop featherweight pale ale, which should be tapped soon. It's going to be made with Cascade and Chinook hops from the Highwire Hops Farm in Paonia, Colorado. So we've got some hops going in Colorado, but they're still trying to encourage more of an industry. And with that, I am going to introduce Melanie Fisher to talk to us about the Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program. And let me, let me just say... You might wonder why we're talking about West Slope water when we're all here on the East Slope. Of course, a lot of our water comes, if you remember Jason's talk, a lot of it comes from the West Slope. And two, we are trying to get people to come talk about the Platte River recovery program as well. Melanie, however, is with the Fish and Wildlife Service. She is the Information and Education Coordinator, and a graphic designer and photographer. And she'll talk to us about the Upper Colorado Endangered Fish Recovery Program. And one point of order, in some of our newsletters and stuff, we called it the Colorado Pine Minnow. It's the Pike Minnow. So a little typo. But Melanie Fisher with the Fish and Wildlife Service. Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program um, started in 1988 as an act of the Western Governors. Uh, There was some squabbling that was going on um, about the Endangered Species Act and how water development was going to continue. And the governors got together um, and created a public and private partnership, which is the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program. We work with water developers and hydropower, as well as other industries that are on the western slope uh, with environmental groups and the state and um, federal agencies. Would you like to go to the next slide? So what I really would like to talk to you about, which is the most important thing to me, are these fish. Um, Everyone in our office is a scientist except for me and the administrative officer. So you're not going to get as much science from me as you are love for these fish. 
So I have, I brought some cutouts, which are illustrations. a humpback chub, and a humpback chub lives in canyon uh, waters, and in, it, like last year, was the first time since the 90s with, that we found wild-born humpback chub in the Grand Canyon. And these fish can get to be about 22 inches long. They're in the minnow family, which will become important when I get to the Colorado pike minnow. And I'd like to pass these around so you can just take a look at them if you would like to. So. The next chub is a bony tail. And the bony tail gets its name because of the long tail that it has. And on your tables, you're going to see that you have a green book. And you also, on each table, you have one beige color book, which is a historic document. Um, the historic document, if you look through it, you're going to see a picture. You see historic photographs of these fish from the 20s and 30s. And these fish uh, were endangered twice. By the time we got a broodstock together, we only had 10 fish to work from. And so we lost the long tail that you're going to see in these historic documents. And I think it's... But anyways, you're going to see that these tails are really, really long. And these fish can get to be about two feet long. And they live about 20-some years. So this is a bony tail, which is uh, related to the humpback chub. Want to pass that one around? I shouldn't have a favorite, but I do. And this is it. Um, this is a Colorado pike minnow. And this Colorado pike minnow can get to be historically six feet long. It has no teeth. It evolved three million years ago, can live to be 40 years old. And it is the top, was the top predator in the Colorado River. It is the largest minnow in North America. Everybody thinks of minnow and they think of a tiny little fish. Well, here you go. What they used to do historic—sorry, what they used to do historically—was they would tie a rabbit on a rope, throw it in the river, and they would catch these fish. And that's what they lived on during the winter during the Great Depression. And they called them white salmon, and they would can them. So, if anybody who ever wants to see these fish, if you come to our office, we have all four species in aquariums in our office, which I'm happy to give you a tour of. So that's Colorado pike minnow. Yanks the Colorado Pike This this is a razorback sucker. And you know, a lot of times people on the western slope will call our fish trash fish and they say they're all suckers, and they're not all suckers. There are three fish that are actually suckers. Uh, there's the razorback sucker, which is this fish right here. This hump that's behind his head acts like a hydrofoil and keeps it upright. So when the river's running hard, instead of the fish doing this, this keeps them upright so that they, they are not you know, becoming flounder. And this fish evolved four million years ago, can live to be 50 years old, and gets three feet long. So our program, once it was established by the governors, the Western governors, um, what we do is, if you want to uh, move to the next slide. What we do is we make sure that water development continues while 
these fish are, are being recovered. And what happens is, is the water developers, they actually have some sense of certainty about what's going to happen. Prior to this program being in existence and when there was a lot of uh, potential for litigation, you would have to go and get multiple permits to do any kind of water development. Because this program exists, water developers can work with us and it puts them in compliance with the Endangered Species Act, which um, I'm proud to say we have not had any litigation over water development in our existence. Would you, Frank? So this slide actually shows you how many um, depletions and acre feet of water have been developed as a result of working with this program. So there's actually 2.8 million acre feet that have been developed by water developers working with our program. And so if you travel along the river, you'll see that there are actually <clears throat> pumps along the side of the river with, um, you know, big tubes going into the river which are sucking water out which goes into someone's irrigation area so they can water their crops. Uh, water sometimes is used for industry in, on the western slope and everybody needs water. You have to have water uh, for fishing, you have to have water for boating, you have to have water for industry, you have to have water for crops. And all of these groups we all work together. And you know in the beginning there was a lot of um, mistrust of, you know, well, is the federal government going to do what it says it's going to do, or the state's going to do what they say they're going to do? And through um, a lot of meetings and people hitting, hitting their heads against the wall in the 90s, we've come up with a program that actually works very well. We're a model. Um, we have, let me put it to you this way, we have bipartisan support in Congress. And that, that's, that's pretty, that doesn't happen anymore. And so we try and make sure that, that everybody is getting what they need to have water development continue in, in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, and uh, Arizona, New Mexico. That's where the Colorado Basin is. If you look on the front of that book that I left for you, there's a map, and that shows you just the upper basin. That's not the lower basin. The lower basin actually goes down all the way to Mexico. And last year uh, was the first time that water ran all the way down to Mexico because we have agreements with uh, the country of Mexico to deliver a certain amount of water to them, which we have not been doing because we've been in a drought. So um, when I went to the Colorado River uh, meeting in Las Vegas, there was uh, uh, someone from Mexico that actually spoke. Uh, to us because uh, they had actually received water from that. Can I have the next slide? So the threats to the endangered fish are water depletion, large reservoirs, fish barriers, and non-native fish. So we're going to talk about each one of these. So water depletion means that they're taking water out of the river, and if you don't have enough water, then the fish can't survive. The reservoirs um, you know, what they do is a lot of water goes in there to supply uh, recreational use of water for boaters and anglers and anybody who wants to just go have fun by the water. Um, and so fish barriers are, what happens is, is that the fish can't make it all the way through their life cycle because they can't get all the way through the river. And then non-native fish, um, we have 13 native fish that live in the Colorado River and its tributaries. And we now have um, 
over 50 species of non-native fish that have been introduced either on purpose or by accident uh, into the river and its tributaries. And certain species, um, which are the northern pike and smallmouth bass and walleye, those are the worst of the worst. And in Wyoming, we have a burbot, which um, actually lives natively in the upper area of Wyoming, but because it's gotten into Flaming Gorge Reservoir, if it escapes into the river, it'll take hold, which will be very difficult for our native fish. So I have... smallmouth bass, and this is a northern pike. I'm sorry I don't have a walleye, but um, if you've ever caught a walleye, um, you know that it's first of all delicious, and you should catch and eat as many as you can. <laughs> and these fish right here do not belong in the Colorado River. And what's happened is, is that there was a certain, they were stocked into the reservoirs, and they escaped out of the reservoirs uh, because of water releases and that sort of thing to keep a certain amount of water flowing through the river for the fish as long with, along with irrigators and other types of water that's needed through the river to go down all, all the way through the river system. And we also have what, are, what we call bucket biologists. And bucket biologists are citizens that feel that they would like to have uh, fishery in their backyard, and so they take fish that they catch out of the reservoirs, put them in live wells in their vehicles, and then they drive their vehicles to the river and dump the fish in there. The fish take hold. Certain fish are more liable um, to take hold in the river than others. For example, a smallmouth bass is a big problem, but a largemouth bass is not because the habitat in the river is not conducive for them to spawn and basically make this their habitat. The other thing that they're trying to, to stock in um, the river, in the reservoirs right now, are a sterile walleye, and that being that people can still catch walleye and eat them, they're delicious, and, but they're not going to get in the river and take hold. So, so here's what a smallmouth bass looks like, and a largemouth bass, how it's different is it's actually this part of their uh, gill set of their back of their throat is bigger, and that's why it's called a largemouth. And this part of their their mouth kind of curves down more this way. So that's a smallmouth bass. This is a northern pike, and these guys are enormous. And if you look in the middle, in the very middle of your uh, of the green document that I gave you, there is a fish centerfold. All right. <laughs> What you're going to see, what you're going to see is you're going to see why fish, why certain fish are a problem, what the actual river miles are that we fish through, and it's going to give you a much better sense of why these, why these non-native fish are issues. So let me pass around this northern pike, and just remember that as far as I'm concerned, this is the devil. <laughs> That's a northern pike. And the Colorado pike minnow and the northern pike are, are not related. So may I have the next slide, please? OK, so what we have to do to recover these fish is we have to manage the flows. We have to restore the habitat. We do research and monitoring. We, do, we stock endangered fish, and we manage non-native fish. 
So if you go to the next slide, I'll kind of go over all of these elements. So, okay, so flow management is where we do certain kind of releases at different times of the year to create habitat for, for these fish. We have found through uh, studies, we work with the Larval Fish Lab in, at CSU, and they do a lot of work with us. And they have uh, basically said, you know, if you create a, a safe habitat for these fish to grow in, they have a much greater chance of surviving once they go into the river. Because what happens is, is that in these low-lying, these low-water areas, these still-water areas, that um, you have the fish go in there once they're, they're hatched so that they have a chance to grow before they get back into the river. And once they get into the river, then they become food for everything else. And so what they did in Johnson Bottom and Stewart Lake is they, they created a flow to create a wetland in this area, and then they basically sealed it off so that the predatory fish could not get in and the fish that were in there, specifically we were working with razorback suckers, um, that they had a chance to grow. So they grew over a season, then they released them, and so by the time that they got out, uh, and you can go to the next slide now, please. Okay, so this little guy that's on the right-hand side was reared and released in, on the Green River in, uh, I think that this fish was in Stewart Lake. And, and they were released at the end, and then they were recaptured the following spring. Because what goes into these fish is a, is a little pit tag. Uh, a pit tag is something, it's like the same thing that you would put in your cat or your dog, so that if they get lost, you can find them. And there's, um, I have another prop, hang on. A pit tag, if you look on the back of this one, there's a little thing, and it, it's in a syringe. And so when they, when they release these fish or they catch these fish, they put the pit tag in, and then they release them. And so if they become captured again, they can scan the fish. There's a, um, here, let me give you that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so what they do is when, when they're out on the river and they're pulling fish up, they do what's called electrofishing. And electrofishing is either on um, a John boat, which is a metal boat, or they're on um, rafts. And so at the front of the boat, they have um, a technician that has a net, and he has his foot on a, um, a, power, a, a power button. And then the person who's driving the boat or rowing the boat, because in certain stretches of the river, they can't use a motor because the National Park Service says, please don't do that, because it, oops, sorry because it, um, it, disturbs, it disturbs the people that are on the river for recreational purposes. And so, um, so to do electrofishing, the person in the back of the boat has to step on the button, and the person in the front of the boat has to step on another button, which creates the circle of electricity. So the electricity goes through an, uh, a metal anode that's about this big and sitting in the water, and it puts out an electric pulse that draws the fish to the boat and it doesn't injure them. It's, it's a timed, uh, a certain amount of voltage electric charge that goes into the water. And so the person at the front of the boat will scoop up whatever fish that it sees. And so if it's a non-native fish, that fish is put into a live well in the boat. If it's a native fish but not endangered, it's put back in the water. If it's an endangered fish, then it is scanned for a pit tag. 
And if it doesn't have a pit tag, one is injected into it, which means that it was a wild-born, non-stocked fish, and yay for that. Um, and so then they're measured and weighed, and then they're released back into the river system. So that's how the pit tags work. Next slide. So in habitat restoration, you know, part of what happens with all of these reservoirs, and if you look in, may I borrow this for a minute? So if you look on, I think it's page, page nine. There, this, this is the page right here, okay? This page actually shows you where all of the reservoirs are. And the reservoirs, by agreements with water users, release water based on uh, a call from our hydrologist, Jana Mormon, who uh, unfortunately couldn't be here this evening because she and I were both scheduled to be here together. Um, and Jana will say, okay, we need so many CFS of water for, for fish habitat. And so the reservoirs will release that water and that will create floodplains. We've also provided fish passage. So if there's an area in the river that has not had a, um, it, that's, that does not allow the fish to go all the way through the river to, to complete their life cycle, we put in a fish passage which will allow them to go through the river. Uh, we have screen diversions, which means that um, as, the river rows, as the river goes through, we'll have diversions which will keep the fish out of irrigation canals where they will die unless we, we capture them uh, and put them back into the river. So that kind of gives you just a, a little bit of a sense. And, and in, in things like this, like there's one in um, New Mexico that's run by the Navajo Nation, which is our sister program, the San Juan program. And they go through once a day, Navajo um, Fish and Wildlife Service goes through into this fish passage and they, release, they catch and release any fish that's caught in there uh, as long as it's not a non-native species. But any endangered fish, they go and release them every day. Next slide. So part of what we do to, uh, to create a better, better situation for the fish is we actually went into here and created a different flow uh, in Johnson Bottom. So that, that's one of the places where we, you know, I think I'm probably talking loud enough, but. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, so anyways, uh, maybe what I'll do is just hold on to this and that way I won't keep losing it. Um, so anyways, by doing that, what happens is, is that uh, we were able to create a wetland in Johnson's Bottom by um, basically digging out the canal and, and reforming the way that it was going. Next one. Okay, so this is empty right now. And what you're going to see in just a minute is how the non-native fish problem has progressed by decade. Would you hit the slide once? Okay, in 1980, this is how many non-native fish were in these various rivers and its tributaries. So the, you see the Colorado River has uh, three different sections, and that's because the, those are river reaches. So if you hit it again, now see what happens in 1990. So you're starting to see there's a lot of other species that are showing up uh, in the river. So go to 2000. Wow. So go to 2010 now. So this is why we have a problem. Because what we've done is we've created a lot of, of opportunities for the fish to get recovered by, you know, making sure that their habitat is there, that they have enough water. But this non-native fish problem has just like gone bananas. And if you look in the very back of your book, 
there is a color there's a color brochure that's it and that's that is a standalone non-native fish brochure and uh, it has many of the same elements that you see in the briefing book but on this page right here the front page it talks about uh, you know the program and the problems and and then you get the same centerfold and on the back page it talks about what we have to do to rest to resolve the problem may I have the next slide please Okay, so non-native fish eat, th these predatory fish eat our fish. And what happens is, is you can see in this, this slide right here, this very bottom one, there's this much of the fish is dissolved because once it goes into the gullet, the, the, the predatory fish, the northern pike, the walleye, and the smallmouth bass, they have teeth so that when they, when they, when they encounter a native fish, they basically grab onto it, but that's not enough. They have teeth on their gills. And if you've ever fished for northern pike, you have to be very careful how you take the hook out of them, or otherwise you'll tear your hands up. Because these teeth are called gill rakers that are on their gills, and that's what takes and pulls the fish all the way into their gullet. And a northern pike can eat a fish two-thirds of its size. And if you look in, at some of the, the size of these fish that are in their belly, uh, you can see how big these fish were to begin with. And once they're in there, even if we pull them out, unless we pull them out exactly perfectly, they're dead. And there's nothing that we can do because the, their digestive acids already start to dissolve the outer layer of the fish. And then, you know, it's just like, you know, if you lose part of your skin, it's very hard to... You know, it takes a long time to recover. And I'm sorry to be gory, but, but it's, you know, it, it really is a, it's a truthful aspect of what this problem is. And that's why in the centerfold, the fish centerfold, that you can kind of see these pictures, plus there's some more if you, if you need to see more about that. May I have the next slide, please? So what's happened is, is that we were moving cheerfully forward towards uh, working on downlisting the Colorado pike minnow and the razorback sucker. And then in 20, when we did a population estimate in 2011, uh, we realized that what had happened is that even though the Colorado pike minnow was holding its own and doing well, it really took a nosedive. And, and then we saw an increase in the northern pike. So part of, um, you know, we kind of stepped back and we said, okay, what are we going to ramp up our efforts on as far as non-native fish are concerned? So there was some research about um, flow releases, which I think is really fascinating, um, where smallmouth bass, um, how they propagate is that when the eggs are laid, the male stays around, and he protects the nest from anybody else getting involved in the nest. And so um, what, they're gonna, what they're thinking about doing is doing water releases to disrupt smallmouth bass spawning. And when you have high water years, that benefits northern pike. And when you have low water years or drought years, it benefits smallmouth bass. So when we get, you know, working on one, then the other one kind of pops up a little more strongly. So what we do is we do non-native fish removal, which is... Um, basically on the electrofishing, and we are trying to do flows to disrupt their spawning. May I have the next slide, please? So 
here are those fish, and there's the walleye, even though I don't have a, a prop, that's what the walleye looks like. And so we're doing in-river removal, removal efforts. Uh, we are changing, or we're attempting to change the, um, the mix of fish that are in reservoirs. We want to provide the public with a, a good uh, and healthy uh, angling experience, but we don't want to have certain fish get released into the river. And our state partners have been working together. We have uh, what we call a catch and keep policy in Utah, Wyoming, uh, which means that if the fish are caught in Utah or Wyoming, they, they may not be removed, they may not be returned to the river, they have to be removed. Um, and in Colorado, what Colorado's doing is they're doing uh, fishing derbies. Uh, they had a smallmouth bass fishing derby uh, this July, and they removed over 2,000 smallmouth bass from Ridgeway Reservoir. So all of our state partners are doing their part to help the non-native fish issue. May I have the next slide? So um, I think we can, um, we've already talked about the lake management plan that's it, replacing the fisheries with compatible fisheries that the public will enjoy catching. May I have the next slide? So. One of the things, so this shows you the map, and this part that's colored, which is also in your non-native fish centerfold, uh, that shows how many river miles. We now electrofish over 600 river miles at a very large expense. And it started out that we were doing 20, 30 miles, and with the non-native fish exploding, the population's exploding, um, we're doing 600 miles now. So, and then these reservoirs talk about whether or not um, the, the sources of non-native fish, if they can be contained or if they cannot be contained. At Elkhead Reservoir, which is uh, near Craig, Colorado, um, we are exploring putting a net at the spillway, which would allow allow the fish to be caught if they if they come over because there's a water release. If we have too much water and they need to release water, so we're hoping that by next spring that we'll have that net in place, which would be better for everybody. But then you're not killing a reservoir or killing fish; you're actually catching them. So, may I have the next slide, please? And so this talks about the fact that our state partners are working in cooperation with us. Next slide. So propagation, genetics, and stocking. Um, this, these are ponds where um, our endangered fish are raised in a hatchery. And once they reach a certain size, uh, we, we discovered that if we keep the razorback sucker and uh, the bunny tail in the, in the hatchery ponds longer and let them get bigger, that they have a, a much higher success rate of, um, of survival once they're released into the river. Next, please. And that shows you, like when you have fish fry, you can sort of see in these ponds these little kind of specks, and those are all little fish. Next, please. This is Zane Olson in Utah holding a bony tail, which you can kind of see that bony tail is kind of big. Next, please. And this is, uh, this is basically how they fertilize eggs. Um, they take eggs and they mix them with milt, and then they put them in a plastic bag and they do this, okay? And if you uh, get last year's uh, newsletter, um, you'll, there's a video that's in that newsletter. So you can kind of see them do this and they'll explain it to you. So may I have the next slide? Uh, go ahead and get. 
All right, so hatchery production is necessary for the bony tail and the razorback. Next slide. Uh, in Colorado pikemen and the humpback chub, we've been able to not have to go to uh, hatchery raised fish. The, all the fish that are in the river are wild born. Next. Okay, we, this just shows you that, that the uh, hatcheries are meeting their production goals. And so their 2014 production is, like in Waweep, which is in Utah, is 147% over what they need to do. So you can go, next slide. And um, so when they, when they release the fish, there's also another video that was done by the Nature Conservancy um, that shows um, a fish release which is also part of our briefing book from last year. Next, please. So the pit antennas, uh, the, the technology, the pit antennas I already talked to you about, and you have that fish going around. And then we also have another thing that is our database, which is being developed at CSU. And that way, every biologist that's out on the river can actually take their data and upload it into a system that's run at the university, which will allow everyone to have access to the information that they need to have to actually see trends in populations and both in native and non-native fish. Next. Okay, so here's my deal. Um, we have opportunities to go to different places, like I'm here today. And, um, you know, we do a thing in Grand Junction where you can go kiss a sucker. And, and so, um, Mike, this is Mike Gross, and he's one of the guys at the hatchery in Grand Junction. And they bring out tubs and um, there's like a whole aquarium that they bring out which allows the kids to actually touch the fish and be around the fish. And then um, the lady in the picture there is Angela Cantola and she's our deputy director. And um, she is at a Farmer's Market in Grand Junction uh, because we take every opportunity we can to go out and talk to the public uh, about what we're doing and why we're doing it and why these fish are important. Next slide, please. So. Um, we also have a Facebook page and a Twitter account, and if you could please like our Facebook page, I think that would just be lovely and I'd really appreciate it. And um, this was an opportunity for, you see there's a bony tail right here, and that's a smallmouth bass. That, we caught that smallmouth bass um, in, in electrofishing, and because he was shocked, as soon as we got him in the live well, he he basically threw up the bony tail, and he had just swallowed the bony tail. So the bony tail was, you know, stunned, freaked out. I mean, whatever you would do if you were a fish and had just been eaten by another fish. Um, and so we, we, you know, he was there, and he was like, he wasn't digested. And so we were really lucky, and we measured him and made sure that he had a pit tag and put him back in the water, and off he went. Next slide, please. So how, how we work, I'm part of the program director's office. And as I said, we're a public and a private partnership. And how we operate is we operate with um, several committees. We have an implementation committee, which is the top tier, which is like the, uh, the regional director for the Fish and Wildlife Service and executives with other uh, state agencies and or private industry. Uh, the management committee are, these are people that are actually looking at what we're doing. The biology committee makes sure that all the science that we are doing is correct. The water acquisition committee is Jana's uh, committee, and um, they work together to make sure that there's enough water uh, for water users, water developers, recreational use, and fish. 
and then the Information and Edu Education Committee. Uh, what we do is we come up with uh, creative ways to communicate with the public in a transparent way that allows people to understand what we're doing. Next slide, please. So, why? No, there's a Colorado Pike minnow for you. And so you can see one of these guys that we pulled out of the river. And, you know, every time anybody catches one, you can, anytime you look at them, they've got a big smile on their face because it's a wonderful thing. And um, they want to be able to, you know, help these fish recover. So how we work is we work together and we try to be creative. We don't say this is the only way to do it. We look at our science and we say, okay, how can we do this better? And if something's not working, we do something different. And we all love what we're doing. And I think that what you wind up getting is you get, you get to let go of the us versus them mentality. And everybody gets to work together. And we all like what we're doing. And we're trying to recover these fish. Next, please. So all right, wait just one second before I, because before I, this is going to be in 10, 20 minutes. But I have a sheet. If you people would like to sign up for an email and get my digital versions or even a printed copy if you would like, that would be great. And, you know, I have people chum. And so um, I have brought fish magnets and I have brought squish fish. I have stickers. So here's how you get any of those things. You can sign up for my newsletter and my briefing book or you have to ask me a question. And so that's how you get that. Cool. So thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, okay, sorry. Just a couple quick things before we break. Um, one is we are recording Melanie's talk, and we do this every week. So if you miss a talk or you want to refer someone to one of our talks, you can always find that on goldenbeertalks.org. Also, next month, our speaker is an expert on the coffee trade, the global coffee trade. So that'll be pretty interesting, I think, the, the man behind Kaladi Coffee. And we also have an email list. So if you aren't yet on our email list, there's a couple sheets floating around, and you can sign up for those. We don't have chum, but we do have beer. So you might want another beer, too. We'll come back in a little bit here. Thank you for being present, Carl, for the Q&A. <laughs> We're going to reconvene here for the Q&A. Yes, Ambassador, do you have some diplomatic thoughts to share with us? I do. In this article on, on growing the beer industry in Colorado... You can have the microphone. The, the, the beer ambassador has some additional yeah, thoughts. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I really have to share this with you. But in this article on growing a beer industry in Colorado, I couldn't make this up. They have this picture... All right? And there's a bunch of guys in a bar, right? But the caption, I couldn't make this up, it says that this was a monthly meeting that they had on the second Tuesday of every month where these guys were talking about developments in the mining industry. And this is like late 1860s, early 1870s. And they say they're talking about developments in hand steel, you know, improving the steel, like probably hardening it with, with molybdenum, which was mined here in Colorado and also uh, replacing black powder with possibly this uh, nitroglycerin thing, but they're having trouble stabilizing it, so they're trying different stuff, like trying to stabilize it with cellulose. Not, you couldn't make that up. This was a golden beer talks about 150 years ago. Right here in the article awesome. from one of our speakers. Yeah. 
No kidding, that's even our schedule the second Tuesday of every month. It, it's uncanny. It's uncanny. It just can't be an accident. <laughs> One other quick thought before we uh, bring Melanie back up for Q&A is if you would be so kind as to help us your table, that'd be awesome. There's bins over here. And um, on your way out, if you could, that would be wonderful. Come on up. So I just wanted to say that on your table there was one historic document. And if you would like, I brought some more. Um, I don't know if I have enough for the whole room, but um, if you would like to take one home, please let me know and I have some more with me. The briefing documents are there for you to enjoy and take home. Um, and so fire away, I got stuff. Yes? It's just their species. You won. Okay. The question was, how does the fish get designated as a minnow? And I said, it's their species. You won. Yes. Well, the problem is, is that, okay, do we have targets for how many non-native fish need to be removed to let the native fish, the endangered fish thrive? Is that pretty good? Okay. Um, so part of the problem is, is that, for example, a Colorado pike minnow has to be seven years old before it's uh, mature enough to spawn. So we have to keep it alive for seven years because all of the native, the endangered fish are long-livid. A smallmouth bass will spawn more than once in a year, and uh, the eggs in uh, a smallmouth bass, you can have 45,000 eggs in one smallmouth bass. So we have to really suppress the population a, a lot, or otherwise they're just going to keep coming back up. And the goal is to not electrofish them to death, because doing that is very expensive, and nobody wants to spend that kind of money. So what's the yeah, long-term solution? The long-term solution is, is to try and f to stop more from getting in, and then to reduce their population so that they're manageable. And I don't know that there's a number that has been determined as to what that is. And to continue to do research to disrupt their, their spawning and their habitat. You have ideas, you just have to monitor. You, have, you just have to continue to monitor the ideas. Right. Right. And that's why we have the Laurel Fish Lab at CSU that's also doing research out along with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Biologist, state of Colorado, state of Utah, state of Wyoming. Okay, so would you like a sticker, a squish fish, or some magnets? Uh, I'd like a sticker. Okay. <laughs> what else can I? Yes, sir. Is there been any uh, talk or discussion about having open fishing season on these non-native Well, actually, um, the state of Utah and state of, oh, sorry. Has there been any talk about um, an open fishing season on the non-native spe species? Is that correct? Okay. Um, so the state of Utah and the state of Wyoming have a catch and keep or uh, a must kill. And what that means is, is that when you catch these fish in the river, you must remove them from the river anytime you catch them. And Colorado is doing fishing tournaments. Uh, they had their first tournament at Ridgeway. 
reservoir, and they removed over 2,000 smallmouth bass in that tournament, and they will continue to have other tournaments. Now, um, to get somebody to join a tournament, you have to offer them um, some incentive. The state of Colorado has offered um, a variety of prizes, some of which were are really large prizes like a boat. And um, so this last, there's a certain amount of fish that are pulled out of the reservoir and they're pit tagged, which is what I showed you before. And so you, can, you have to bring in anyone, any size class, any, any development stage, and they get scanned. And they pit tagged tiny little fish and really big fish. So you don't know how many fish were actually tagged. And I think there was, um, and you know, I may be wrong, but I think there was like 20 fish that were tagged so that there was a variety. And then out of those 20 that are turned in, then one of those is drawn and that person rents the grand prize. So, so the, the question was, is there any incentive to, um, to let people who do not have a fishing license uh, fish for these species and without any, um, any harm? And the answer to that is no. Um, and, that's, and I can't speak for Colorado, but I know that Colorado's wildlife laws are very specific. And if they catch you fishing without a license, you get a ticket. Well, the state of Colorado, the Department of Fish and Wildlife is not likely to do that, in my opinion. And that goes against everything that they stand for. And um, they're very adamant about people having fishing licenses. So you asked two questions. Would you like to have two different things? No, I'll just take a... Oh, you want magnets, squish fish, or stickers? You can have two. Okay. <laughs> what is your question? Is there any pollution in the river that favors one species over another species? Is there any pollution in the river that, spa that favors one species over another species? No, all pollution is bad. Um, you know, right now there's a certain uh, aspect in the river of selenium and then other drugs that show up in the in the river. I mean, you've got a lot of um, metformin from people who have diabetes. You have birth control pills. And there's all kinds of drugs that get released in the river right now that you see as part of when they test the water. So it doesn't benefit. Anything that's in there doesn't benefit one fish over another. So what would you like to have? I know you already have Magnus. Would you like a squish fish? What other questions? Yes, sir. Does every fishing supply store in this uh, watershed know all this information? 
you know, we try to get out to as many um, angler communities as we can. And some people, as I mentioned earlier, some people on the western slope refer to our fish as trash fish. And that has to do with the fact that they don't see a benefit to them because they're not a sport fish. Now, I would beg to differ because I think catching a six-foot-long Colorado pike minnow would be a really awesome thing. And if we can get them recovered to the point of where we can catch and release, then that would be uh, an opportunity for people to fish for Colorado pike minnow. But we're not there yet. But that's part of what we're looking for is to try and, you know, show the angling community that uh, there are other things that you can do. So... That's okay. Right, that's right. So we have stickers, uh, refrigerator magnets, and two different kinds of squish fish. All right. That's right. Okay, well, you just said maybe the answer to my question, or at least part of it, but as you were talking about what a successful uh, public-private partnership you have, it seems like such a win-win-win for everybody that everybody is still getting what they need. They're getting the water they need. They're getting anyway. Um, but I'm sure when you do public events, like you know, had a picture of somebody sitting in a table, like right. there are people who still come up and argue that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And what are those arguments against your program? Well, um, the question is, what are the arguments against the program, and do we encounter people that don't like what we do? Is that pretty much? Okay. So the answer is, over here, not so much, and people like hearing about the fish. When we get to the western slope, because of the attitudes that have evolved over time in that community, we do have a certain amount of pushback in certain communities. And it goes back to the whole idea of what's valuable in their community. And so part of what we do is we explain the role of water in their lives. Uh, because fish can't live without water, humans can't live without water. You need water for agriculture, so you need it to eat. You need water for recreation, because everybody likes to go and get on a boat and have a good time. And so if you put it in that context, people understand that, you know, these fish have a right to survive. Um, in my opinion, some people don't feel the same way about the Endangered Species Act. And so when I talk to people that, are, that have a different view than myself, I try and do my best to provide them with the facts as I know them and to engage in a conversation. So, um, you know, their view is that uh, sometimes the Endangered Species Act is government overreach. Uh, sometimes people look at it as like, uh, I encountered one gentleman who was 70 years old, and um, he said, you know, if they're endangered and it's their time to go, then they should go, and then when it's my time to go, I'm going to go. And what I said to him is, I said, you know, I'm not that far, much further behind you, and, you know, when you go and then I go, there's still people. But when these guys go, they don't exist anymore. And so, you know, I try to not engage in... Um, uh, discursive disagreements with people, but more to try and, and allow them to think about it just a little differently. What would you like? You want squish fish? I know you, I know you got magnets. A humpback chuck or a razorback sucker? Razorback okay. sucker. Yes, sir. So are you seeing feminization of the fish in the upper Colorado River, like especially the endangered 
you know, as I started the conversation, I am one of only two people that is not a scientist in our office. And I don't know the answer to that question in terms of whether or not um, there are reproductive problems with the fish as a result of the, um, the pharmaceuticals that might be in the river. So I don't know, but I would be happy to find that out for you, and I know how to get in touch with you, so I'll let you know. <laughs> All right, so you got a razorback sucker. You want a humpback chub now? Absolutely. Okay. Maybe one more question? Does anybody want to know anything else? Well, okay, so how do we get money? So if you look on this page right here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point it out to you, and then I'm going to answer your question. So there are two pages that have charts on them, and those are pages 22 and 23, and you see that there is a chart on the left-hand side, which is the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program, and then on the right-hand side, on page 23, is the San Juan River Recovery Implementation Program. And we get money from various sources. Most of our money comes from reimbursable funds, which are provided to us for, uh, through water development and hydropower uh, through the Bureau of Land Management. No, Bureau of Reclamation. And um, so, what they do is they pay the Bureau of Reclamation money for developing water on federal lands, or there's a certain amount of funds that they have to pay our program for ESA compliance. So that being said, those reimbursable funds come to us, and then we in turn use those funds to provide the research that has to happen for the fish to become not endangered, or become first downlisted and then delisted. So as, as a good news kind of thing, the Razorback Sucker, we are having conversations right now about downlisting them. Not delisting them, but downlisting them. Because the Razorback Sucker populations are doing so well that we're not sure that they have to stay endangered anymore. So that's good news. That's not your question, but that's just good news. And the other uh, place that we get funds from um, is through Congress. So Congress has funded us until 2021, I think. And at that time, then it has to go back through Congress as to whether or not the program would continue to be funded or not funded. So even if, or when, let me say when because I'm optimistic, when these fish are downlisted, we still have to go through a certain amount of maintaining of keeping an eye on them to make sure that they're not backsliding. Um, but the re the appropriated funds, which is what comes from the taxpayers and what also comes through Congress, basically covers uh, the salaries of the people that, are, that work for the, you know, because I work for the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and there's a few other things. But if you look at those charts, it pretty much breaks out where the money comes from and how the money gets spent. So what would you like to have? Would you like a squish fish? Huh? All right, let's have a nice big hand for Melanie.